0: Well, tonight we are going to return to our study of the English Bible, and uh, again, not doing an exhaustive study of the English Bible because that would take a lot of time and be actually a lot of, uh, very enjoyable. I did cut down material I studied and put in here, and I was like, no, I just need to not focus on that. So you'll see that in a moment. But so, so tonight's part three, I think the final version. For now, we may dig into other translations another time. But tonight, we're going to look at translation theories, mainly with the English Bible. Um, reasons to use the Lexi Standard Bible for preaching, teaching, and study. So, kind of go um, in, into that as much as we can, and wrap up with some questions. So, just this is this is more of a review than anything else from last time. So, there's basically two families of translations. You say there's translations in what's considered the, the Tyndale tradition, meaning they're flowing from the, the Tyndale Bible and translations that, that were made uh, from the Tyndale. So it's, a, it's, it's defined by Robert Thomas, Dr. Robert Thomas, who used to teach at the Master Seminary. Uh, he got a promotion and now is in heaven. So, uh, but he said, A translation with deep roots has profited from improvements made over a long period of time, that kind of growth provides a degree of stability and reliability. So the advantage with, with translations that flow from this tradition is they're not new. So they've they're been refined. They flow from a, a textual basis, a known textual basis. So they're basically refinements. They're not new translations. And this is an overview. I think I showed this last time. But I added in at the bottom um, the Legacy Standard Bible that we'll get to. It's not a new translation it flows from the new American standard uh Bible, primarily the updated version so the um the dotted line there and the solid line connect uh over here in case that's not obvious I didn't draw the lines there, but the left half um starts with the Tyndale version and goes all the way down and it flows to the right half and then the legacy standard Bible there at at the bottom the Geneva bible is has a dotted line um because it's it's um Somewhat outside the the normal tradition because of how they the the texts that they used to translate from, and that's why it's it's like that. Um, then then there's a whole other group of Bibles that are called fresh translations. So again, I'll turn to Dr. Robert Thomas. He says having an absolutely new trans- translation could add freshness to our reading of the Scripture. That's a very positive statement, a uh, very optimistic statement. So. Um, And basically, the fresh translations do just that. They kind of open up a a new window. And so when we talk about uh, fresh translations, we're just saying it doesn't have a historical tradition. They're not taking another translation and making a a minor improvement on it. They're starting from scratch, and they're going with a whole new translation. They're not consulting uh, the other English translations uh, in that process, um, or at least typically they're not. So... Um, now, it doesn't mean these things could be good or could, bad, could be bad. It just, a lot depends on the translator. So these are some examples of fresh translations. The Bible in basic English, the expanded translation of the New Testament by Kenneth West, um, the Amplified Bible, the Good News Bible, uh, contemporary English version, the Jerusalem Bible and the New Jerusalem Bible. Those are uh, Catholic versions. Um, the Living Bible. Um, it, which is a more of a paraphrase, and then the New Living Bible, which they tried to take it out of the paraphrase, so it's more in the area of what we call a dynamic translation, dynamic equivalence. We'll get into what that means in a minute. You got the New International Version, which is a dynamic equivalence translation, um, and the TNIV, and there's several variants of that. The Readers' New International, so um, they're not all equivalent, and they're not all equal, and then Holman Christian Standard Bible. Uh, which seems to be fairly trustworthy, but it's also a kind of a fresh translation. It doesn't flow from from that. Then the updated version is they've dropped the publisher's name Holman. Now it's just the Christian Standard Bible, so it's been slightly updated. So I want to get right into translation philosophy. I'm not gonna. I I started commenting all the various translations and what they're good for and all that, and it just got to be too deep. And I was like, no, if I do that, I won't get to the Legacy Standard Bible comments. So. I told you I was going to do that. I didn't want to delay it any further. So, if you have a question about a particular Bible, then um, the the book that I quoted from in the past, how to true how to choose a Bible uh, translation by Dr. Robert Thomas, is a very good resource. I'll I'll have it listed here later. But he goes into a lot of the different uh, translations, so it's very helpful. Um, so, translation philosophy. So, first of all, we just want to to define our terms. So native language is the original language in which a text is written. So that's that's the Hebrew or Aramaic. There are sections of the Old Testament written in Aramaic, mostly Hebrew, and then you've got Greek in the New Testament. Then there's what's called the receptor language. That's the language into which a text, uh, into which a text writ- is written in a foreign language is translated. So. The receptor language in this case in our case is English. they're taking it from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into English. Now dynamic equivalence is a theory of translation based on the premise that whenever something in the native language text so is is foreign or unclear to a contemporary reader, the original text should be translated in terms of a dynamic equivalent. So that's the that's the theory, and then in going into the definition that the dynamic equivalent is a meaning in the receptor language that is equivalent to, but not identical with, a meaning in a native language text. For example, the heart as the modern way of denoting the essence of a person, especially the emotions, which for the ancients was situated in the kidneys. So I recently did some teaching on things that I actually pointed that out to you, that, that in the Greek text, uh, the Greek word is actually pointing to the bowels, uh, that because that's the seed of emotions in their way of thinking, in the old Greek way of thinking, um, and the Holy Spirit used that language to talk about it. But we don't talk about that, so you know, we don't. If we said, "I love you" from the bottom of my bowels. That would sound rather strange, right? It does you. sound oh strange. Gosh. So, yeah, exactly. I love you with all my guts. Would be a good good paraphrase. But um, so that's that's what it's talking about. So there are some cases where you would say it kind of makes sense to to change. Things here or there, you can make a case for that. Um, at the same token, I make a as I make a case later. There's a lot of dangers, I think, with dynamic equivalence, um, in because it, it takes us one step further from actually what God said, um, and now you're getting more of a, an interpreter's opinion. So all of this, uh, just just by way of disclosure, these definitions come from uh, Leland Ryken. In his book understanding english bible translation which is another very helpful book uh, if you want to dig deeper in into that so I'm, I'm not a bible translation expert and so these are the books i would go to i go to when i want to know more about it so i'm letting you know that now there's a slightly different term called functional equivalence so functional equivalent is something in the receptor language that differs from what the original text says but that serves the same function. In the receptor language, for example, um, first fruits translated as special offering. I think I have a typo. Something in the original language that differs from what, oh, that's right, from what the original sex. It's right. I just need to read it. For example, first fruits would be something written in in, uh, like Greek or Hebrew. Then it's translated as special offering in the uh, functional equivalent example. So functional functional equivalence is a theory of translation that favors replacing a statement in the original text with a functional equivalent whenever the original phraseology or reference is obscure for a modern reader in the receptor language. For example, holy kiss translated as hearty handshake because the latter is how Christians in Western cultures extend greetings to each other today. So that's just one example. Now, what's the difference between formal and uh, equivalent or functional equivalents and dynamic equivalence. I almost said the wrong thing, but it's functional, functional equivalents, functional equivalence and dynamic equivalence. To you, to me, they're they're the same. They are um they are used functionally. If you do a little search on the whatever search engine you use on the internet, dynamic uh equivalents, you're gonna see articles that that pull up functional equivalence. And I actually went to an article, the scholarly article that someone did in, I think, his PhD work on what is the difference between functional and dynamic equivalence. And it was um, a lot of linguistic jargon that even I didn't understand. I'd have, to take, I'd have to read it very carefully and dig into it. So there is a difference in it because the person that in really developed these things, Eugene Nida, uh, he pioneered both ideas. And he first came up with dynamic equivalence, and people misunderstood what he said. And so he kind of refined that. And so the functional equivalence is his refinement. I don't know that it's any better from our standpoint. Um, but just to let you know, if you do any research on it, you'll see that out there. Now, there's a, there's a, another translation term called equivalent effect. That is, equivalent effect is translated in such a way as to produce the same effect on readers of the translation as the original text produced on its native language readers. For example, the message, um, which is one person's paraphrase, it's not really a translation, but the message gives the image of daughters as shapely and bright as fields of wildflowers, as producing the same effect as the original text image of daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. So a quote from Psalm 144, verse 12. So does it have the same effect on you? the danger with this kind of translation is it's nearly impossible possible to produce the same effect that it has on the original reader. But do you understand what they're trying to do? They're trying to produce the same effect or the same response that an, an ancient Hebrew would have had as they read Psalm uh, 144, verse 12. So, then there's formal equivalence. So formal equivalence is a theory of translation that favors reproducing the form or language of the original text, not just its meaning. In its stricter form, this theory of translation espouses reproducing even the syntax and word order uh, and the word order of the original. The formula word for word translation often implies this stricter definition of the concept. And along with that, the verbal equivalent. So a word or combination of words in the receptor language that most common, closely corresponds to a word in the original native language text. And then Leland Reichen argues for a, an essentially literal translation, that is a translation that strives to translate the exact words of the original language text, but not in such a rigid way as to violate the normal rules of language and syntax in the receptor language. So if you translated it, uh, didn't an exact word order of like, for example, of Greek. With every English word, it'd be very difficult to understand. So there has to be some rearranging, at least of the word order, subject, noun, predicate, all those kind of things. There has to be some rearranging of that, simply because of how Greek is so much different than English, in order for us to make sense. So that what he's saying is, you ha- you can't be wooden with the literal part. But it does need to be literal, and that's what he's arguing for and he does a really, really good job with that so and again, all this is from his book on understanding English bible translation so those are the those are the key terms um I guess there's two more here: one is linguistic conservatism. you might hear as applied to Bible translation, a general orientation towards language that would seek to conserve the actual words of the original text as much as possible. An implied contrast to the liberalism of dynamic equivalence, which does not feel bound to reproduce the actual Hebrew or Greek words of the original. So your conservatism, when you're trying to translate it literally or almost literally, is what he's saying. You're trying to represent as closely as possible what the original text said, whether it's Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. And then there's a term transparent text that gets thrown around, and both sides of the big debate over dynamic equivalence or formal equivalence will use this term, and he points that out. And he said that because of that, the term's not really helpful. So he says uh, a text is transparent to the modern or contemporary reader when it is immediately understandable in the receptor language. This is the goal of dynamic equivalent translations. And then he says that translation is transparent to the original text when it reproduces the language, expressions, and customs of the original text. This is the goal of an essentially literal translation. So you'll, you'll, when we talk about the Legacy Standard Bible, they'll often use the, the idea of a window. They want to create a, a window that's as clear as possible into the original text. So that's what, they, that's what they're you know, using the word transparent in that sense. But there are others that say, no, we need to gear it towards the reader. We want it to be transparent. To the reader, and that's why it's not really a helpful term unless you take the time to define it. So, what's wrong with dynamic equivalence? I've suggested uh, that it's not a favorable method of translating the Bible, and and again, this comes from Leland Reichland. While while the term need not imply license as used by dynamic equivalent proponents, it does imply a loose attitude towards preserving the words of the original text in the Bible. So. If you go to like the original New International Version, which is a dynamic equivalence, I would say they've done a, a fairly good job of trying to make the Bible, English Bible readable, but maintain the like the they don't have a loose attitude towards the scriptures. They're trying to preserve it. So the inter- inter- international version is—I wouldn't use it as a study Bible, but I would say you could—you could give it to somebody and they could read it and be saved. It's clear. So, um, not so with some of the more the newer ones like the TNIV, but the NIV is what I'm talking about—the or original. So translating the Bible into something equivalent in the original text stands in implied contrast with translating it into something that corresponds to or identical with the words. So that's—that's that's the difference. So. In dynamic equivalents, they're taking a phrase that might be hard to understand and they're bringing it into modern lingo so that you can understand it as a reader. Whereas those that hold to formal equivalents, more word-for-word type translation, are saying, no, we want to find an English word that corresponds to um, that word in the Greek and Hebrew. We're not necessarily trying to find an equivalent that a modern reader could understand. They're saying, in other words, we're going we're gonna to sacrifice a little bit of readability for the sake of maintaining accuracy on what God actually said. So that's it. It's a compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, and the word dynamic actually means a spirit of freedom or exemption from the need to reproduce the actual words of the, of the original in an English translation. So you'll find some dynamic equivalent Bibles that are like, uh, I would consider ones that you could read, like the New International Version, NIV. But then there are others that I would say they're not even worth your money to buy or time to read, like the TNIV, today's new international version. And, and, and I won't go into all the reasons for that because we just don't have time for that. But you can, you can ask me if you have questions. So the, the, the problem I have with dynamic equivalence and what most expositors will say they have a problem with it is that it interprets too much for you. It takes you one step away from what God actually said, and when you're reading through it, they don't tell you where they're doing that. so that's the problem. So in many cases where the new international version does this, I actually agree with a lot of their a lot of their interpretations, where they land, not all of them, but a lot of them. But I don't like it because when you're reading it, you don't know what's an interpretation of the translator and what is a translation of what God actually said. So as we'll, well I'll mention later it's the pastor's job to help you understand what God actually said. It's not the translator's job to help you understand what God said. You just need to know what God said. And so that's the importance of using a a, a Bible that doesn't subscribe to, to dynamic equivalence. If you use the NIV that's 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 fine. I'm not saying change um but I'm saying, beware of that, and don't build any like doctrines that are outside of orthodox theology on the n i v because it might not be what God actually said you have to check into that it might be uh an interpretation rather than what god said so i'd rather I'd rather have a text that's debatable what did God really say, and let's have a discussion let 's study the scriptures together and let 's talk about it that's good, and that's healthy i'd rather have that. Than having a translator take the debate away from me, and now you're just reading it, and you think that's what God actually said when in actuality there's a there's a good debate about what does this really mean so that that's the danger in it. Uh, Leland Riken calls dynamic equivalence um, kind of an inadequate and misleading term. He says we also need to know how inadequate to the point of being misleading the terms dynamic equivalence and functional equivalence as descriptors are as descriptors of what translations of what translations being those names actually do with the original text in fact only a small amount almost a statistically insignificant quantity of what we find in modern dynamic equivalent translation is a matter of finding an equivalent for something in the original what these translations mainly do and he, that's his emphasis in the in the text is beyond that parameter, consisting of such things as changing syntax and word order, adding exegesis and interpretive commentary to the text, simplifying the context of the original text, simplifying—sorry, uh, removing figurative language from sight, producing a colloquial s- style for the English Bible. Colloquial just means common man's language. And adapting the translation to the expectations of a target audience. None of these activities can be honestly construed as finding an equivalent for difficult words and phrases in the original text of the Bible. That one phrase he's talking about is really important. And adapting the translation to the expectations of a target audience. The target audience is the audience that you're writing to. And they don't, they don't just mean English. So sometimes the target language is is very specific. Like we're going to translate this uh, Bible, we're going to translate a Bible into English for the fifth grade reading level and above. So they take whatever a fifth grader would know and they don't use any terms that a fifth grader would not know, like a fifth grade reading level. So that's how specific sometimes the target audience gets when they're doing that. So here's um, a, a, a work and you won't see all the, you won't know all the numbers are, but Robert Thomas, Dr. Thomas, uh, he was a former engineer from Georgia Tech, um, did did work on like studying certain passages and how much they deviate from the original. And so at the top, you've got the American Standard Version, the ASV. I know that's, uh the picture is kind of pixelized because I tried to make it as big as I could. Uh, but you can find this in his book. It's on page 96 of his book. So you've got the American Standard Version, which people have said is the most literal version English Bible ever produced. And its criticism is is it's wooden. It's at it times difficult to read. But if you want to know, like you have an accurate English translation of, of what the Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic actually said, it's still the best as far as that. It's just difficult to read it, um, because of the, the woodenness. But it's very literal. And then going on down that King James Version, New King James, New American Standard Bible. So these are all uh, deviations in, in translations. This is not talking about at all readability, okay? Um, but he, he just he looks at the type of deviations, change in word order, omissions, lexical alterations, lexical is has words the word changes, uh, syntactical alterations, syntax is how words relate to one another, and then words ad- added. So you add all these up, and and this this is um, I think done for certain passages. There's no way this is all done for the, the whole Bible. So you go all the way down um, the America Standard Version, and then you've got the Living Bible. So um, all the way at the bottom. And at the bottom, he's in these charts. To the far right column is paraphrase translations. In the middle are what he calls free translations. So that's, that's your uh, dynamic. And then you've got your little translations on the, on the low side, on the, on the left side, left column. So this is a little bit easier to read. This English translations gives you a range, shows you they're not all not all dynamic equivalents, and not all literal translations are the same kind of literalness or the same kind of dynamic equivalents. So on the left you've got word for word, what's called formal equivalent uh, translations: the ASV, the New American Standard Bible, uh, the Amplified Bible, RSV, ERV, New King James Version, ESV, LEB. Just goes all the way down. NIV is uh, it near the middle. And on the right-hand side, you've got the message, and I don't even know what some of these other ones are. Um, TV Bible—I'm not sure what that is, so I don't think I want to know. But uh, oh, the voice—you're right. Someone's reading keys, which I should be doing. There's a little little key at the bottom. I can't do that and talk at the same time. But thank you, the voice—that sounds dangerous. So, and this is not exhaustive. I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of others, Um, and I. I did not originate this. I got it online from uh, a website. I can give you that link if you want to look at it. So as far as translation resources for further study, so um, these are the ones I've already mentioned to you. So Dr. Thomas' How to Choose a Bible Translation, Leland Ryken, Understanding English Bible Translation. That's a thinner book. So if you want um, more of a, a succinct read, that's the one to buy. And then his fuller book, The Word of God in English, Criteria for Excellence in Bible Translation. That's his uh, larger, larger book. So again, very, very helpful. Both of them are recommended by um, MacArthur. All three would be. All right, so let's transition a little bit away from uh, translation philosophy to talk about the LSB. And and the transition is we need to talk about the New American Standard Bible, particularly their 2020 update. Let me pause just a minute to ask if there's any questions about translation philosophy. Okay, so why not just keep using the New American Standard Bible? There's the old adage, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So I didn't know who first said that. i to look it up. Bert Lance, you know who he was? I didn't either. So he worked for Jimmy Carter. So what what was he talking about? Context, Context. Context. you know, i would have to go look it up. (laughs) Um, He was, he was... um, in the Office of Management and Budget in the year nineteen seventy seven so that was probably his excuse of why he didn't need to balance the budget it's not broke you know so anyway, um, I don't know the cut for the full context of the statement, but it's quoted a lot, isn't it? you know if it's not broke, don't fix it so all right twenty twenty update well there is there is something that while we wouldn't necessarily call it broken, it's unacceptable to us. Um, all of this comes from, this on this page, comes from the Lachman's website. So the Lachman Foundation is the one that did the New America Standard Bible. They own the copyrights to that, their 2020 update. So they, they contend that the NASB 2020 maintains faithful accuracy to the original text and modernizes the English so that it is properly understood by readers most familiar with modern English language standards. It's still considered to be in the Tyndale tradition of English translations. I think that's my conclusion, um, because I wanted to tie it in with what we talked about earlier. And changes include an attempt to use a gender-accurate language that is to specifically include women if it was indisputable that the original audience would have understood the text to mean women were in fact included. So they would add, like where it says, in some texts where it says brothers, they would say brothers and sisters. They would italicize the ancestors to show you that it's that it's added, um, small things like let you know, let's the contraction versus let us, um, and updated textual basis. So we didn't talk at all about behind all these translations are variances in the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic and the manuscripts they're translated from. So we didn't dive into that, but just know that that's, that's there. There's um, scholars really work hard to try to try to determine what was the original text of jeremiah what was the original text of the gospel of john and and your bible has contested portions like in gospel of john we went through that or mark chapter 16 is mark chapter 16 the full part of that is that really what god said or is it not so there's there's legitimate debates that's not a translation debate that's a manuscript debate um but I, i would just say with that there's There's no portion, or there's no essential doctrine of Christianity that is in any of the portions of Scripture that we would say are are debatable. Did God really say this or not? So, uh, that that's that's the good news. Um, And then with the uh, update of the 2020 NASB, they they most bracketed text was moved to the footnote. So, like the section I talked about in Mark uh, or John eight, that's bracketed off and said this, and you know, in in the Current Nasby, it'll say, this: these verses are likely not part of the original. And they didn't really want to remove them because they've been in the Bible so long. They wanted you to see it, but they wanted you to know that it probably wasn't part of the original Gospel of John. Probably added in there at some point. So they've taken that out and just moved it to a footnote. So what are what are some of the problems with the 2020 NASB? It's still it's still a Bible you could pick up, you could give it to someone, they could read it. I would say it'd be better than a New International Version as far as reliability. But some of the problems here are, do you have to do with the loss of distinction. So there's some examples. So in Revelation 19:12 says, "His flames," this is speaking of Jesus, "His flames are a, His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems." And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Now, do you know what a diadem is? Without looking at the other notes. (laughs) Too late, right? (laughs) It's it's a crown. Why didn't they translate it as a crown? So that's that's what the 2020 NASB does. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Well, that's good. You know what a crown is. The problem is we've just lost a distinction the fact that there's more than one word in the Greek language for crown, and they're used distinctively in the New Testament. There's a victor's crown, uh, Stefano, sorry, that's given to believers, and then there is a king's crown, a diadem worn by Jesus, and you would not know. You might you might read diadems and say, what does that mean? You could go look it up, and then you would know, but if it just says crowns, you think it's just the average everyday crown. It's the same crown that believers wear so um you see in in verse revelation 44 you see the kind of same kind of uh change there um you, well it's not they they read the same way they talk about the the uh, golden crowns the golden crowns in revelation 4 verse 4 that's the, the stephanos that that's the believer's crown that's the the victor's crown right not the kingly crown so it's there's a distinction. We we aren't little gods that are going to rule with God, right? So we we get the victor's crown. That's the crown of life that we cast the Lord's feet. He has the kingly crown. So you just lose that distinction with the twenty twenty NASB, and I think it's an important distinction. Um. So it, in summary, twenty twenty NASB update changes are not generally helpful. There there are some people that say some of the changes here there does make it better. I don't want to paint an overly bleak picture of the 2020 NASB. Um, But I think it it, for those that want a window into the original text, it's taking a step in the wrong direction. Uh, It's trending towards being a reader-oriented translation. You kind of see that on their uh, website here when they say they're modernizing the English so it's properly understood by readers most familiar with, with modern English language standards. So they're gearing it more and more towards the reader, which means they're taking a step away from what God's word actually said. Um, they're using more general, neutral—I um, uh, have a typo there—gender neutral, neutral. It's really neutral. No, uh, it's just—it's just a typo. square. <laughs> It's—it's more it uses more gender, gender, gender neutral language. So again, they're not they're not taking the name of God and and you know making it female or anything like that. But but they have to you have to change those carefully. And it's better that you know, a pastor walk through a passage with you, or you can get a good reliable commentary, and they can help you understand what the passage means. Is it meaning brothers as just exclusively male Christians, or is it talking about brothers in, the, in a general sense, talking about brothers and sisters in Christ? A good commentary or a faith pastor will help you understand that. Um, again, the NASB does italicize it, so it does let you know. But you have to pay attention for that—that that's italicized and it's not actually there. It's an interpretation; the word isn't there. So God could have very easily said, "Brothers and sisters," he chose not to, even though that word does mean it is inclusive of, of brothers and sisters, regardless of gender. And I think part of the, part of the difference is we're so hypersensitive about gender these days. The early church wasn't. Right? Men were men, women were women, and the women didn't get offended that that they got included with the term brothers, right? with brethren. So it's, um, and it's you know Greek. Greek is not the only language to do that. To this to this day, even in, like in Poland, language operates that way. So if I'm speaking to a general audience, the grammar requires me to use language that's a plural masculine language, right? Otherwise, I'd be rude to you if I didn't do that. It's like our ladies and gentlemen. It's more formal language. Um, so, anyway, that's the language. That's the language God chose to use. So, there's a helpful article if you want to dig into this more. And He gives positive as well as negative comments. Um, uh, I put a website there, opened-open-heart.com, uh, um, and He gives um, the dates. And again, I'll put I'll put this presentation on the website, and it'll have that link with it, so you can go look at it, and kind of dig more into the details, and see it yourself. So I want to introduce the Legacy Standard Bible. So basically, it's building on the best of the New American Standard Bible. It's, it's taking that legacy. It's called Legacy. Uh, has nothing to do with MacArthur leaving the legacy. Some people have said, is that what that means? No, it's not what it means at all. It's taking the legacy of the New American Standard Bible, the best of that, preserving and improving upon it where they, where they can do that. So remember the, the New American Standard Bible flows from the American Standard Bible, the ASV, which is the most literal English translation ever created. But it's also, again, difficult to read. So the, these uh, statements come directly from the LSB website. So what is the LSB? It's a translation. That at its core seeks to be a window into the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. By translating individual words as consistently as possible with their various nuances, it allows the reader to discern what God originally wrote and know the author's intent. In this way, the LSB seeks to be an improvement upon the NASB while simultaneously preserving its faithful legacy. So, what is is the new is the LSB a new translation? I can already answer that. It's it's not. It's building upon NASB ninety five primarily, but they do go back to the original NASB. They are comparing and wrestling, and and they've worked through a lot of the the various details. Uh, every every verse, they didn't just put it in a Word program and and um, like change just a couple words with the uh, you know the replace function you can do in Word. So they just didn't do that, you know, because the the NASB uses the translation for doulos, the Greek word for slave, they, they use it as servant. So they didn't just find all the words for servant and like switch it out and use slave because the Legacy Standard Bible uses slave for doulos. Right? So it's politically incorrect, but it's accurate to what God actually said. Um, so anyway, it's not a new translation. So then uh, what else? How is the Legacy LSB different from NASB 95? So while the Legacy Standard Bible sought to uphold NASB 95, it has several key distinctions. Um, the recovery of God's name, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, I read for the Legacy Standard Bible tonight in Psalm 19. You probably heard that. It probably sounds strange. It still sounds a little strange to me because we've been so accustomed to hear, hearing the Lord. But the importance of that is, number one, it's God's name. Um, he revealed it. The Jews for many years, well, they won't say the name of God. They're afraid to say it because they think that's taking God's name in vain if you pronounce it wrong. And so they came up with, they changed vowels and consonants to come up with Yahweh. So, uh, I'm sorry, wait, wait, sorry, I just said it wrong, Jehovah. So if you heard like Jehovah, Jairo, that's, that's, the word Jehovah is actually man-made. It's not God's name. It's something the Jews created. So they wouldn't have to say God's name. It's actually Yahweh. So, and we don't know how it's actually sound. I could be mispronouncing it. Probably am, because um, that's how I do with all four languages. But God's not offended by that. He didn't give a pronunciation guide. That's the name that He revealed Himself by. It's a covenantal name. It's very important. So there's a recovery, a recovery of that, and it's important too because you can hear the difference when I'm reading it, whereas the other way around. If I'm reading it, and you're just listening like when we read Scripture on Sundays, you don't know by hearing unless you had a Bible open whether it's the Lord like Master, or is it the Lord as in um Yahweh, so it helps with that um and there's some other differences with the uses of weights, measurements, and courtesy as they're found in the original um because the translation is designed to bring the reader to what was originally written the l s b maintains the unit of measurement the scriptures the scripture uses for clarity conversions into both American and metric units are provided in the notes for measurement. So this allows for the LSB to serve the entire English speaking world by not choosing one country's unit of measurement or currency over another. It also preserves any exegetical significance of the way the measurements were re- originally suppressed. So you'll see denarius is denarius. It's not going to be converted be converted in the notes, and it changes so frequently based on inflation so so it's good just to have the original Uh, why was the LSB created Um, from from decades of preaching and teaching the LSB became the translation of choice for John MacArthur and many others who were trained by him the LSB project was undertaken to preserve the legacy of the New American Standard Bible for all coming generations as the gold standard of literal formal equivalent translations and then who is behind the LSB just to be transparent with that the LSB is a joint venture of the Lachman Foundation, so they allowed the Master Seminary to uh, use the rights to the New American Standard Bible so that they could just build on that. That's very, very helpful. Couldn't, they couldn't have done the translation without their generous, their generosity in line, them to use it. Um, so the, it's a joint venture, Lockman Foundation 316 Publishing, who does all the hard copy publishing and the John MacArthur Charitable Trust. Uh, Translation committee consists of a group of biblically qualified faithful men from the Master's University and Seminary, all of whom are scholars and preachers. And the translation also went through an extensive review process from a team that consists of scholars and pastors from all around the world. So um, what I mentioned before about modern translations, uh, Pastor MacArthur said that, that all modern translations right now are tending to be geared toward the reader, what the reader will understand rather than geared towards what did the text actually say. Uh, So the LSB is geared toward communicating what the author intended. The gap between the text and the reader is to be filled by the preacher, not the translator. You can say even by a a commentator. You want to know what God actually said. And then if it's not clear, then you can wrestle with it. You can ask me. You can look at a, a faithful commentary for help with that. But at least you know what God's word actually said. Um, and they're trying to provide the best possible window into the original text. There is no perfect translation. Even the LSV is not a perfect translation. So, um it, it but it's 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 good. So the goal of the Legacy Standard Bible is to bring the English, bring into English what is in the original language, so that whatever the translator seeks in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, the reader sees it too. Let's look at some helpful examples here. Um, let me skip over that and get right to that. So you see, here's some word distinctions that are helpful. We looked at uh, the um, the example um, earlier, but here's another example. In Legacy, a American standard Bible, Revelation 11, 1, verse, reading to verse 2 says, Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. Wait a minute. Get up and measure the temple, but measure the court outside the temple. Right. So you've got, I mean, what's the temple? There's actually two words for temple. Right? And that's the same Greek word that's used there. That's a little confusing. Measure the temple, but then don't include court which is outside the temple. Right. So the Legacy Standard Bible tries to help you with that. It says, then a measuring rod was like a staff was given to me, get up and measure the sanctuary of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the sanctuary. Do not measure it. You understand what's going on. The sanctuary is the inner, like the inner holy place. That's the sanctuary. That's what they're talking about. Then there was the court of Gentiles, which was around that. And that's also considered the temple. So, and that's what they're trying to communicate with the NASB 95. But I think it's clear here in the legacy because they're letting you know it's the sanctuary and why does this matter well god chose a different word it's the sanctuary it's the inner place it's not the wider temple area and then also think about this in first corinthians 3, three sixteen. do you not know that you that you are a sanctuary of god and that the spirit of god dwells in you if any man destroys the sanctuary of god god will destroy him for the sanctuary of god is holy and that is what you are so Understand why it's important to use the same word where the same Greek word is. You, you're, you can draw a connection or um, compare that with 1 Corinthians 3.16 and in, the in, in Nazmi 9.5. It says, do you, do you know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Okay. So the temple could be, you're thinking, could be the physical structure. The temple can be the, the massive outer uh, area of the Gentiles. Well, what God's word is actually saying is that you are the inner dwelling place of God, that sanctuary. You're not like in the outer courts of Gentiles. You are brought in to the Holy of Holies through the blood of Christ. So by using the, the word uh, sanctuary instead of translating it temple, it helps you make a distinguish between what the temple is in the general sense. So the court of Gentiles is part of the temple um, and, and the sanctuary There's some other word distinctions. Just for sake of time, I'll give you real quick. So in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says all scripture is inspired by God. And when I preach to that, I'll say it really means God breathes. And so they said, well, let's just translate it, God breathes. And that way you don't need a pastor to tell you that it means God breathes. So they've they've done that. Um, Legacy Standard Bible helps with biblical theology. I kind of hinted at it earlier. But biblically, biblical theology means tracing themes in the Bible throughout the scriptures in Old and New Testament. So by using the same word as, as much as possible for the same Greek word, or the same Hebrew word, you can actually trace themes in the Bible from the Old and the New Testament and see how God developed that because really God's the ultimate author of all these various books. The Holy Spirit brought about these common ideas. So it allows you to see the themes. For example, the, the theme of the seed in the Pentateuch and then the, that theme being picked up again in the New Testament. Um, I'm just going to do one of these. I've got several examples. I won't take it for time. I want to, I want to be, respect your time. But just look at this one for image. So in Genesis 1.27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. And then when you go to Daniel 2, 31, 32, it says, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a great statue. Really, statue. Right? Maybe it makes you think of a big statue, but but you miss the link. That's the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis. Right? If you look over how the Legacy Standard Bible translated it, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a there was a single great image. That image was large and extraordinarily. Extraordinarily, splendor. So drop down to Daniel 3.1, right? Now the Nazbi 95 goes back to using image. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits. Now, obviously it's a statue, but the word using the word image is important. Um, look at Daniel 3.19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hey, look at Nazbi, it says, so then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and the image of his face was changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What is, what's he having a problem with? He thinks he's God. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's God. He is trying to supplant the image of God. And you miss that if you don't have the literal, more literal, keep the, same, the translation the same. Does that make, make sense what I'm saying? And then you take the image of God to the New Testament. Who is the image of God? Christ, it's that same word, Colossians, uh, Colossians one fifteen, right? So the Im- Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. So that that's doing biblical theology. It's looking for the image of God, and you see Nebuchadnezzar ri- ri- you know, raising himself in God's place as the image that all were to worship. So that that's the that's really the cool part about what they've done with the Legacy Standard Bible. And there are other examples like this. I'll, I'll put them in the slide, but I will keep it short. There's the word fear and how the word fear is used just in, in um, Peter. Um, there, there, there are people who want to just shy away from because of the issue of, of how the word fear is used, especially with, with wives, that the NASB and other translations just shy away from it, right? I'd rather you wrestle with what does it really mean but you see, there's linkages between 1 Peter 2:17 2, to 18, 1 Peter 3:1 uh, verses 1 and 2, 1 Peter 3:13 to 15, and there are others with that word fear that they, there's a linkage within 1 Peter and how that word is used that we need to we need to study that and understand how it is used. But again, if you translate it as intimidation or respectful behavior, you lose the links that the Holy Spirit put there for us to study and to understand. Um, here's another one with Psalm 119. Just look at the word on the, on the Legacy Standard Bible. Cause me to understand. Cause me to walk in your path. Cause my heart to incline. Cause my eyes to turn away. Cause your word to be established for, uh, for your slave. Cause my reproach, which I dread to pass away. Right? In the NASB 95, you lose that. Why is it there? Because the Hebrew terms in that section the Hebrew terms are what's called a causative verb, meaning you're not doing it. You're asking God to do it. Right? So, in other words, it's like it's the New Testament version of sanctification where where Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work at you. I mean, you're responsible to to pursue it, but without God at work in you, He it's not gonna happen. So this is the psalmist way of of writing, you know, Philippians uh two. Verses 12 to 13, which is what I just quoted from you. But you miss that uh, in the other translation. It's not the other ones inaccurate. You just miss the linkages that you're actually pleading with God to cause this. So it's a nice portion. There, there are many um, comparisons. If you want to get on the website, this is, a, this is a screenshot from the Legacy Standard Bible screenshot. You can go look at uh, the King James Version, New, America, New International Version, and the English Standard Version. They give those comparisons, and you can pull up several passages. Um, And there's a lot more about the Legacy Standard Bible on their website. They have lots of videos where they discuss certain aspects of the the Legacy Standard Bible um, and its helpfulness in studying scriptures. So questions real quick. What version do I preach from? Right now I preach from NASB 95, New American Standard Bible 95. I will be switching to Legacy Standard Bible. I do not know when. And part of that is waiting on the Legacy Standard Bible supplies to catch up with the demand. So um, you you can buy Legacy Standard Bibles. They don't have any study Bibles. They don't have even reference versions. So right now you just get the plain text, which is good. You can look at one. I have one up here. It's It's a nice font to look at. But what's really going to be helpful is the cross-references. when you get the when they have the cross-reference version available, buy it, because uh, the, I've been told the cross-references are very, very helpful. So they, they brought those in, uh, even from some of the, uh, the manuscript that were used and brought those forward. So it is very helpful. Another question I was asked, does any of, the, of NBC's leadership use the LSB? Not to my knowledge. I, I read it. I'm starting to consult it. The LSB is working its way into some of my sermons. So sometimes when I read a passage or quote a passage, um, it'll be from the Legacy Standard Bible. But generally, the Bible you see in the pulpit, it's going to be the NASB 95 for a, for a, a little bit longer. Um, someone asked, could we place a church order to obtain discounts to save on shipping? You bet. So if we get people that want it, Uh, We can place an order and, and, you know, get it in and save on shipping. And there's even discounts for larger volumes. So um, you can see what's available by going to the website with 316publishing.com and the um, collections and LSB. They sell various translations, but they're the ones ones that sell LSB. You can also get it at other publishers. I think Christian Book. um, I haven't checked Amazon to see if they're selling it yet, but it is sold other places. Uh, Questions? Yes, Charity. Sure. Um, okay, so on your slide, it had mentioned that the translation committee consists of uh, qualified faithful men from the Master's University of Seminary. Correct. So that's the question. I was wondering, is that typically the case in other translations where a translation comes from men from all of one seminary? No, no, it's a, it's a very unique Bible from that standpoint. So, it's um, there are some translations that are just by one individual, like the Message, for example, one person. Okay? Um, there are other translations. Most translations are done by a larger committee. Um, so this is the first translation that I'm aware of, and I'm not all that knowledgeable. So I'll just say I heard MacArthur say, "It's first translation done by one, like one educational." Institution, so the university and the college and and the seminary, so they operate uh, together, but they're on separate campuses and have separate teachers. So. Okay. So the follow-up question to that would be: the translation went through an extensive review process from a team that consists of scholars and pastors all around the world. Mm-hmm. Would those be master's grad pastors, or would that be then encompassing different seminary graduates? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. It could be because we, there's a, quite a few graduates serving overseas. Um, it, it, it could be that, but I'm not sure. I don't know if, it, like I said, there's a lot of videos on there, so I'm not sure um, who who all was in part of that. There's one, you can see some of the pictures here. So these these are the guys that translated it. Now, MacArthur didn't translate it. He's, he's the spearhead, but he didn't translate. So, but he's talking in round table with uh, the, the key people that are involved with the translation. And then there were a lot of really bright guys that know the language a whole lot better than I do who proofed it. Uh, like a friend of ours, Grant Gates. Um, who, uh, my oldest son, Joshua, is his best friend, but he's absolutely brilliant in languages. And he was doing a lot of proofing multiple times, proofreading. Um, Abner Chow is the one who directed this. He's the president of the Masters University and Seminary. Again, a very brilliant guy. And they talk about how, how much work they put into this. So. Again, they're not translating something new. But um You know how long it took? I think about nine months. But it, it went a lot faster than they planned because of the COVID lockdown. They weren't teaching elsewhere. So that's that really helped them speed up the process. Any other questions? Okay. I'm ten minutes over. So let me pray and um, release you. Our Lord God, we want to just thank you for the the sacrifice of those who have given us Bibles in our language. Um, Not just the Legacy Standard Bible, we're thankful for that, but there's so many others that sacrificed much time and effort and money and late nights, uh, trying to get us a Bible that helped us to see and, and to read what you actually said. Help us to make good use of that for your name's sake. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.